Hey, Crosswalk, what a privilege it is to be here with you today in what we call the Mothership Redlands Crosswalk Campus. It is so exciting to be here, but I do want to start off with a little bit of a shout out to my hometown, Portland, Oregon, and Crosswalk Portland. You guys, we hope to see you next weekend at our March 6 food drive at Portland Adventist Academy. So we're looking forward to that. But truly, it's an honor not just to be here because we're a part of this family, but to think about what Jesus is doing through the movement of Crosswalk across the country. It is so exciting to be a part of a group of people that are doing whatever we can to lift up Jesus. So I also shout out to Foothills and to Denver and Chattanooga and Northeast Atlanta and Clinton and all of our level home groups and people that are doing what they can to lift up Jesus. So thank you so much. It is good to be here today to have a moment to share with you a bit from the word. Um, today is campus day, which means that we are between two sermon series. We're between a series where we're talking about rearranging our lives from the book of Exodus and heading into a series where we're talking about what it means to be a Christian to claim, reclaim that title. And so I thought today that I'd be a bit of a bridge between those two series. And I also am bringing about a message that I'll be honest, speaks to my heart right now because I don't know about you, but for a long time, my heart has been heavy. It's just been heavy with all sorts of things going on. Yes, COVID and all the things that we've lost from COVID, the family members and loved ones that we've lost, the, the plans that we had hoped for that we've lost, the jobs that we've lost. Um, but also it seems like every time I turn on the news or I look at my phone for a text, I'm hearing about another horrific accident or another friend who has a loved one battling cancer, or something happening in our world. Add on to that all the political tension and cultural things that are happening. It's just been heavy. So what I felt impressed to talk about today was something that I hope lightens our heart and gives us hope, and like I said, builds a bridge between these two sermon series. So to start that conversation, a bit of a story. So. A couple, uh, several years back, I was sitting in my office on a Friday, and I was having a devotional with my team, as I often do Friday at that time, and my phone rang, and it was my wife calling. She knew that every Friday at that time, I had a devotional with the staff, and so I figured it must be important. So I picked up the phone to hear my wife say that one of my best friends from college had just gotten the news that her 21-year-old brother, a younger brother, was killed in a car accident. Now, that in and of itself is tragic, but that wasn't all that my friend was going through because six months before her brother was killed in a car accident, she learned that her mom was diagnosed with cancer and her mom went very quickly. Three months before that, her grandfather, who had done a lot of the raising in her life, he died from cancer as well. The technical term for what she was experiencing is called compound grief. It's what happens when um, you experience grief situations too close together. You don't have time to process one situation before you're hit with another one. And that's what my friend was experiencing. So when I got this news, obviously I raced out to be by her side so that I could help her through the funeral with her brother and just support her in this horrible time that she was going through. So we had the funeral and after the funeral, I was standing beside her in the reception line 
as people were going through to offer their condolences. And the pastor who had done the service comes up to her and gives her a hug. And I hear her whisper into his ear. He said, uh, she said uh, to him, if you have a direct line with the guy upstairs, tell him I don't get this. Obviously, she was mad. She was frustrated. She was angry. She was broken. She was hurt by all that she'd experienced. And most of all of those emotions, she targeted it at God. So later that day, we were walking in the park before I had to go back to the airport and head back home. And she was able to finally process all the things that had happened. And she told me about losing her grandfather and losing her mom and then all the events that happened around the loss of her brother. And she wept and I wept and she expressed her anger and her frustration. And then before we parted ways and for me to head back to the airport, she said, Patty, would you pray for me? I was actually surprised that she asked me to do that because I knew she was angry. I knew she was blaming God for everything. And, and of course I said I would pray for her. But honestly, my next thought was, oh, what do I, what do I say? Um, and I don't remember all of what I said but I do remember how I closed the prayer. I closed the prayer by saying, thank you, dear God, for loving us even when we hate you. When I went home later that day and I was on the plane, that line kept going in my head, thank you, dear God, for loving us even when we hate you. Thank you for loving us even when we hate you. And I started thinking, why? Why does God love us so much, even when we hate him, even when we ignore that he exists, even when we choose to believe he doesn't exist, when we curse him, why does he continue to pursue, continue to chase after us? Why does he love us even when we hate him? What is his motivation? And so the more I thought about that, the more I looked for an answer. And what I discovered is what I want to share with you today. But in order to get into an answer for it, we have to talk about the concept of desire. What is desire? What does it look like? What does it mean to us on a human level? And then what does it mean to us, or what does it mean from the perspective of the divine, from the creator? What is it that the creator desires? So for us, first of all, let's just define the word. The word desire in the dictionary definition of it simply means a wish, a longing, or a want. The problem is a dictionary definition is always falling short because if you look up what a wish is, you'll find out it's a longing, a desire, or a want, and vice versa. It's just circular. It doesn't get us anywhere. So instead, I'm going to give you an operational definition of what it means uh, to desire. An operational definition is when you take a word and define it using a more practical real-life setting. So for me, desire is walking into a toy store where there's a million toys that you could play with, right? Everything you could imagine. But on this day, when you walk into that toy store, you don't care about any of the other toys because you have your heart set on one thing, something you've been saving all summer for. Every lawn you've mowed, every babysitting job, you've been saving your money up for one thing, and it's the remote-controlled turbocharged helicopter on aisle eight. You know exactly where it is. You walk up to it. You grab it. You take it off the shelf. You walk it up to the cashier. You set it down along with the exact change, including tax, because this is all you've been thinking about for months. They give you your receipt. You take the remote-controlled turbocharged helicopter out of the store. The whole time, you didn't look at any of the other toys, just your helicopter. That is desire. 
Desire is longing for something so much that it's all you can think about, all you can talk about. You obsess about it. You talk it so, so much with your friends that they're just like, okay, okay, we get it. You like it. That's what you want. So we go through different stages of desire and wants as we grow up. For example, when I was five years old, I can remember the thing that I desired as a five-year-old was corn on the cob. I couldn't wait for the corn on the cob season to come around. I love the taste of corn on the cob. Plus, you know, you could not only eat it and it was delicious, but you could play with it, like, you know, eat it like a typewriter. And of course, if you're born after 1990, you'll want to Google that so you can see what a typewriter is and does, and then you'll understand. Um, but when I turned six, I can remember a horrible tragedy happened because I lost my two front teeth at the same time, making the chomping of the corn on the cob impossible. Now, my grandmother still like cut the corn off the cob and served it to me, but that's just corn. Who wants just corn, right? It's like peas. Peas aren't good for anything except to put in a straw and shoot at your siblings. And parents, I'm sorry for what your kids might do now later today. Um, but I grew up after that a little bit more and I got onto the preteen years. And then as a preteen, all I could think of other than the opposite gender was a driver's license. Oh man, I couldn't wait to get my driver's license. And I'm the youngest of three brothers. And then of course, mom and stepdad in the house. And I can remember that as the youngest child also being a little dramatic, that I would think, man, what if, what if the whole family got some sort of illness and it, it made it impossible for them to drive the car, but they had to go to the hospital and instead of calling the ambulance, because those are expensive, I'm gonna just get them all into the car and take them myself. I didn't want the illness to like permanently hurt any of them, just enough for me to drive them to the hospital. I used to daydream about that. But then, of course, you grow up a little bit more, your desire again shifts, something else, and now it was a car. I had the driver's license, now I needed a car. Not just any car, you wanted a car that all the guys wanted and all the girls wanted to be seen in. But I didn't get that car. My first car was a 1974 Ford LTD four-door. Now, this is a huge car. In fact, my friends called it the boat because once you got it up to about 50, it just floated down the road. Um, it, it got about six gallons per mile. And I know I said that wrong, but I think I said it right. Not six miles per gallon, six gallons per mile. You could drive fast in it, but you could watch the fuel gauge go down while you were driving, literally. Um, and then later on in its life, it developed an exhaust leak that actually came into the cabin of the car. So if you didn't want your eyes burning while you were driving, driving you had to hang out the window. It's fantastic. It's a great car. I never actually got that cool car that you wanted. But then, after I grew up a little bit more, then my desire moved on to something else, something more meaningful, something more long-lasting, because then I wanted to find the woman of my dreams. And growing up in the Pacific Northwest, there was one place you went to if you wanted to find the woman of your dreams. And that place is called Walla Walla University. It's also affectionately called by people that go there, Western Wedding University. I figured I had pretty good odds. So I went to Walla Walla and I went on my search to find the woman of my dreams. Now, I didn't always take God on that journey, which I would come to regret. But eventually, I did find somebody who was willing to be seen with me in public. 
So I figured that was, that was probably good. Um, and we tried desperately to make that relationship work. We worked for two years to try to make a relationship work that was pretty clear to most people it probably wasn't going to work. So at the end of two years, we decided it was best to go our separate ways. Now, two years is a long time, and I left that relationship heartbroken, crushed. But I learned something through that. I learned that when you're heartbroken, when it feels like your heart is in a million pieces, that that's kind of a, that's a great time for God to come in and, and start piecing you back together in a way that you never thought was possible. And that started to happen for me. I got closer to God in this time than I'd ever been before. Um, And I was studying my scriptures. I was praying. I was just, I was in a really good place with my relationship with God. And one night, I decided to, um, I I felt impressed, I should say, to to pray. um, And to pray for the woman, or at least the, the, the types of, characteristics that I thought I needed to find in another person, the things that would complement me well, that would be a good match. And so I prayed and I wrote and I wrote and I prayed. And at the end of the night, I, I looked over this list and I was like, well, that's really, that's really idealistic. So I went back through and I said, I'm just going to star a few of the things um, that, that are non-negotiables, things that I know I need to find in someone else. Then I prayed over that list and I said, God, I'm just going to surrender this to you. I'm going to surrender my desire to you. I'm going to trust that when the time is right, then things will, will happen as they need to. So I prayed over the list. I prayed over whoever that person might be. And, and I prayed over my journey. And I just said, God, this is, this is yours. Um, and then I, I felt freedom after that. I wasn't going to worry about it anymore. And in my timeline of things, I know it doesn't always happen like this, but it was just a couple of months after that night that I was at Taco Bell with some friends because I was in college and that's the only place you can afford to eat when you're in college. Um, And we were sitting there and one of my friends says, oh, Patty, I got the perfect girl for you. I said, great, where is she? She said, well, she goes to school in Texas. Well, I quickly did the math and realized that Texas was about 2,000 miles away from where I was going to school in Washington. I wasn't interested in a long-distance relationship at the time, so we quickly dismissed the idea. But then, about a month after that conversation, this same person was going to be in Southern Oregon for a wedding. Not her wedding, thankfully, um, but a wedding nevertheless. And my friends and I decided Southern Oregon is about a six-hour drive, so they set me up on my first blind date. Now, I don't know if the rest of you have been on a blind date. I don't know if those went well or didn't go well. Um, if you're single, then I have advice for you, okay? Because there's, there's protocol to going on a blind date. And that pro- protocol is that if you are um, going, you have to ask a question. You have to ask the question of, well, what, um, it, it's shallow and horrible, I know, but you have to say, well, what, is, what does he or she look like? Because if the answer that comes back is, well, he or she has a great personality, or he or she is a lawyer, or he or she has a nice car, well, that's all great and and that, but they refuse to answer the first question, so you should be afraid. Uh, But I asked the question, the first thing that they said is, well, she's 5'11". I said, okay, I'll go. Because I'm almost just over 6'4", and most of the people I had dated up to that time were, were much smaller in stature. And, and so it can be kind of awkward sometimes. So anyway, we go, we meet, she comes out, she has three-inch platform uh, heels that she's wearing, which is fantastic. We had this great day together. She, she goes back to Texas. We start writing and calling each other back when you had to pay for long distance, and it was a ridiculous amount of money. Um, and 
Long story short, next month we celebrate our 22-year anniversary. So I realized right before we got married, we were packing up our stuff, and I found that list that I had written to God. And I read over that list, and I realized that that list described my wife perfectly, down to a T, and that God had given me my greatest desire— but then the question comes, that's how we see and think about desire and that's the way we interact with it. But what is it that our creator desires? What is it that he talks to the angels about and, and so much so that they may roll their eyes like, okay, God, we get it, we get it, we know, that's what you want, we know. And so to look at that, I have some verses for us to go through. Um, because if it's an obsession, if it's a desire, it's something God's gonna talk a lot about, right? So, Exodus 25.8, this is a verse that Pastor Tim talked about. It says, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. Leviticus 26.12 says, I will walk among you, I will be your God, and you will be my people. And then we go on to Ezekiel 37.27, I will make my home among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then we go to Zechariah 2.10, and that says, shout and rejoice, O beautiful Jerusalem, for I am coming to live among you. And then 2 Corinthians 6, 16, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then one of my favorites, Revelation 21, 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among the people. He will live with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. Throughout his word, throughout all the stories of trials and tribulations, throughout all the sins he's endured, the truest desire of God's heart is that one day he will dwell among us again. No more separation, no more distance. Our desires will be for him. We will no longer choose sin for God will be our one and only desire. Our love will be his, no longer separated by anything. We will live together face to face. This is what God desires. This is what, what has motivated his every move. I've often said that if the Bible was a best-selling novel on a, a, a New York Times best-selling list, if it wasn't called the Bible, it would be called the chase because the Bible tells the story of a God chasing after his creation page after page after page. And then that next verse in Revelation 21.4 this next verse is the one I long for, especially in the trauma of this last year, especially in the crisis that my friend was in. This is what I long for. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. It's important to note that this is not just what we want. This is what God wants. This is what God desires. This is what has motivated his every action to interact with us, to touch us, to hold us. That, my friends, is paradise. And to God, it is what has caused God to do everything he's ever done. Even going so far as coming down here and taking on human skin to walk among us, to live among us, to teach us, to show us an even clearer picture of him and then to die the death of a thief on a cross. To be with us, to live with us, to dwell with us is what he longs for. And yes, he is with us now as his Holy Spirit, but he longs to be with us face to face. 
We are his children, and there is no doubt in Scripture that he wants us to come home. And finally, here's the great thing about Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. No matter where you start in the Bible, that's the end of the story. Revelation 21 is the end of the story. If you're starting in the trees in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve have taken a bite of the fruit, or you're hiding in the cave with the king, or you're in the manger as you see the birth of Jesus, or you're watching him die on the cross, Revelation 21 is the end of the story. And if we choose to follow Jesus and claim the name Christian, then Revelation 21 can be the end of our story too, which we learn as a follower of Jesus, the end of the story is really just the beginning. For one day, we will be where we were, we were meant to be, hand in hand with God, with our Savior, and with the all-powerful and mighty Holy Spirit. Don't miss it, Crosswalk. God's greatest desire is to be with you. And his greatest hope is that your greatest desire is to be with him. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, what, what a blessing it is to know how much you want to be with us, how much you've done, how much you've sacrificed, how much you've chased after us, hoping that we would just let go and fall into your arms that we would let you catch us. Father, remind us in the times that we're in especially, it's been a long year, much going on, much loss, much grief, and a lot of heavy hearts. But remind us that the things we see, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is when you will shout that now the dwelling of God is with us. We will live with you and you will live with us. And you will take your very own hand and wipe the tears from our eyes and tell us that now there's no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. We long for that time. And it's amazing to think that you long for it even more than we do. Thank you for loving us beyond measure. Help us as we go throughout our lives to look up, keep our eyes on you, and remember that the end of our story is the beginning with you. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.